The topic of this podcast is the complaint and the path to interrelated multidimensional diagnoses. It will be narrated by Dr. Michael R. Boots and was recorded in September of 2020. It is based on the works of Dr. Michael R. Boots, Dr. F. Barton Evans, and Ms. Weber Derzinski. There are two articles from the American Psychological Association that were published in Professional Psychology Research and Practice, and there is a book that was recently published by Dr. Boots through Rutledge on Parent Alienation and Factitious Disorder by Proxy Beyond DSM-5 Interrelated Multidimensional Diagnoses. Hello, uh, my name is Dr. Michael R. Boots, and I work as a clinical forensic and neuropsychologist in Montana. I have been licensed in a number of other states as well, such as Idaho, Maine, and Wyoming. And I received my master's degree from San Francisco State University and my doctorate degree from Wright Institute in Berkeley, California. I'm also a fellow of the American Psychological Association, and I put forward a number of different publications and presentations, as well as books, and I'm best known for the work that I have done on integrating nonlinear dynamics into behavioral health care. Now let me speak about the initial complaint that I had and the path that led me to the concept of interrelated multidimensional diagnosis. This whole concept started by describing my most recent book and then the journey that led me to writing the book. Fundamentally, the implications from the book is that our field needs to revisit the entire concept of diagnoses with a continuum that spans individually based diagnoses, relational diagnoses, and highly complex system diagnoses that I have described as interrelated multidimensional diagnoses. Now, I realize that this term is a mouthful, and for short, we'll just call them IMDs the rest of the time. The concept of an IMD was intended to describe, and quoting here from the book, a set, in a mathematical sense, of diagnoses that holistically addresses interrelated individual and system characteristics, symptoms, and subdynamics in a dimensional way that cumulatively create a pathological dynamic. This set of diagnoses was envisioned as satisfying a portion of the existing diagnostic descriptive void that neglects the importance of individual-individual, individual-systemic, systemic-individual, and system-system pathological dynamics. The term was intended to propose a diagnostic set in which there is an array of potential diagnoses that have shared interrelationships, characteristics, and symptoms among individual and pardon me among individuals and systems. There are, importantly, diagnoses that manifest under the right conditions, conditions in which interrelated and subdynamic phenomenon interact to transform into a larger pathological dynamic. Now that's quite a lot to get your head around, comma. And the book has addressed 
two very damaging abusive dynamics, what is commonly referred to as Munchausen syndrome by proxy, and in professional circles with a fair amount of variance, factitious disorder by proxy. Parenthetically, the latter term, factitious disorder by proxy, has been agreed upon by the largest scientific body in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 4th edition treatment revision, or DSM-4-TR for short. And for those in the field, the DSM-5, well, it has some significant problems, problems that are for another discussion. The way the concept of an interrelated multidimensional diagnosis describes Munchausen syndrome by proxy and or factitious disorder by proxy have been defined in the book in the following way. It is a family systems diagnosis that involves the deliberate production of feigning of physical and psychological signs or symptoms in another person who is under the individual's care. Typically, the victim is a child under the age of four, and the person engaged in the acts is the child's mother. The apparent motivation for the mother's behavior is the psychological need for attention by proxy, and thus she presents a sick child to a health care professional. External incentives are absent and existence of an unusual or rare disorder has been eliminated to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty. Then, as an interrelated multidimensional diagnosis, we have parent alienation, which was described in the book in this way. Parent alienation is a family systems diagnosis that involves a child whose parents are engaged in a high conflict, separation, divorce, post-divorce custody proceeding and in the course of these proceedings the child's presentation changes noticeably followed by engaging in alienating behaviors toward one parent often referred to as the rejected parent in addition the other parent who is often referred to as the alienating parent also engages in what are referred to as alienating behaviors toward the rejected parent for the apparent purposes of limiting information about the child or children these parents share, encouraging the rejection of this parent and limiting the other parent's contact. Parent alienation does not hold in cases in which the parent only denigrates the other parent to the child, child or children and does not engage in other alienating behaviors. Parent alienation does not apply in cases where the child's rejection of the parent is justifiable, as in conditions of estrangement, such as abandonment, abuse, neglect, or witnessing intimate partner violence. What these two phenomena hold in common are broadly two things. One, how complex they are and two, how long it takes practitioners or professionals to actually recognize them. The third and most important thing that they hold in common is that both phenomena are abusive to children and adolescents. These phenomena have been known about for better than 40 years 
And what has happened in the field over that time is that there have been continued arguments about the nature of what to describe these phenomenon, what constitutes these phenomenon, and how to discuss them. It was my feeling that a new diagnostic concept needed to be introduced in order for people to be able to step back and see these complex interrelated dynamics or an interrelated multidimensional diagnosis. Reviewing the kinds of abuses that happen to these children. In the case of Munchausen syndrome by proxy and or factitious disorder by proxy, roughly 8%, pardon me, 8 to 10% of these children die and about the same number are permanently disabled. In parent alienation, on the other hand, it is not as lethal, but in moderate to severe cases, the phenomenon essentially confounds the child or adolescent's ability to trust, not only in others, but in themselves. These young people who are entwined in parent, in, in parent alienation dynamics are under tremendous psychological pressure by one or both parents, and in turn they give up who they are psychologically. This tends to last with them on into adulthood with a number of different problems that they suffer from. Anna Freud described abusive dynamics like this, and make no mistake, parent alienation is psychological abuse. In her essay, in 1936, where she used the phrase identification with the aggressor. Most people in the field of behavioral health take it as an expression or phrase of art or term of art, but in reality, it was a brilliant essay by Anna Freud on what happens psychologically to those who have been abused. This essay is worth reading and it clearly articulates was often entailed in extended abuse situations and how this identification dynamic plays out. Circling back to parental alienation, it is important to know that it is estimated that over 44,000 children and adolescents are impacted by parent alienation here in the United States. To explain all of these matters involved with these phenomenon would take some doing. And I'd like to read another passage from the book in order to give you a sense of its complexity and the flow of the discussion that will follow in this podcast episode. It is a section from early in the book called Meanderings and Systemic Thought. What is hoped for in the pages to come is that the reader will have traveled a number of different streams and tributaries to arrive at the confluence of ideas concerning how the complexities intrinsic to the phenomenon of IMDs resemble other phenomenon in science and art. During the process of building towards such a confluence, this author will ask the reader's patience as some tributaries to these thoughts meander while other streams flow more directly. 
Also, there are discussions that ebb more practically and still others that flow in the direction of theory building. At times it may seem that the journey has cryptic or even enigmatic points of reference which seemingly course away from the anticipated confluence. Still, this author will request that the reader take note of these reference points and hold them until later in the chapter or even in the text to understand how they contribute to and or fit into the IMD concept. So, while there will admittedly be confusing currents that may boil with the reader, within the reader's mind, be assured that this author has included each thought piece and reference to contribute to the reader's initial and deepening understanding of how IMDs come to exist. So, that quote um, plainly brings up that we need to have an obvious discussion that here in this podcast I will ask the same kind of patience from you as a listener. These concepts are truly difficult to get at initially, but in my experience, once you begin to understand the elements and pieces of this concept, it will flow more readily. And that holds, in my experience, across the courtrooms of Montana and with those I have shared these concept, concepts with. Once explained from a more inclusive perspective, these elusive phenomena tend to come into view with a reasonable amount of clarity. Many a wise person has suggested that stories help others follow, and it is my hope that the story that follows will prove to be interesting and thought-provoking, though admittedly with a meander or two. Perhaps one of these meanders will help you identify with these phenomena and find a meaningful application to your professional life and your practice. Now let's discuss part of the path that led me to IMDs across over 35 years of clinical work. Back in 2008, after much thought, I wrote a piece on what is commonly referred to as Munchausen syndrome by proxy. The manuscript was called, in short, The Complaint. And while there's more to the title, my complaint at the time was that the diagnostic agreement in the field and the literature was so poor I could not even make reasonable sense out of it in terms of a diagnosis and as a practitioner. The piece began as part of a forensic case in the mid-2000s when I was referred a case and asked to answer whether or not it involved Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Given my earlier experiences in Maine, I thought this would be a fairly straightforward case and took it on. But the literature had changed significantly in just a few short years. Again, just to make sure that you're not confused by the more scientific term for the same phenomenon, which has been factitious disorder by proxy since 2000. Unfortunately, there are a whole variety of other names for this same phenomenon that I'll get to in a few minutes. Okay, so as I was saying, the literature had changed on Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Apparently, as I eventually put things together at that time, 
Sir Roy Meadow, who in 1977 had originally described these dynamics, had badly mishandled a case, the Sally Clark case. There was, in fact, a fervor over it. In turn, new terms were being sought and governmental agencies were rushing to distance themselves from the concept of Munchausen syndrome by proxy. They began using terms like fabricated and or induced illness in children and other such variations. Organizations such as the Royal College of Psychiatrists seemed to be in a rush to change the term, akin to the way a business organization will rebrand themselves after a scandal. The literature at the time was literally fraying at the edges. As, fa as fabricated and or induced illness in children and many other terms simply began to proliferate. In my view, there was no way to cleanly make the diagnosis in a manner befitting forensic work, given all the different terms being thrown about at the time. By the way, I have addressed the matter of proliferation by way of what I have described as the platypus paradox in the book, but that's a different story. Anyhow, with all the work done in the case, I had enough material for an article and a whole lot of frustration that had built up in attempting to answer the question. So I put together a manuscript in that state of mind and sent it off. Well, rightly, the journal Professional Psychology Research and Practice asked me to revise the original manuscript. After reading over the peer reviews, I found myself in agreement with much of what was said and still I knew I was too close to the, to the material and these frustrations to make a clean run at its revision. So I asked my colleagues, Barton Evans and Becky Weber, to help. Plainly, my first submission was a bit too strident, and I was in need of assistance to offer a more professional tone and different perspectives for the piece to be able to work. Ultimately, we agreed that if you understand this phenomenon as both one where individuals have certain characteristics and behavior, and one in which there are dynamics that occur within a family system, and between the family system and the healthcare system, it would be more readily identifiable. It was our view that factitious disorder by proxy becomes knowable, even to the point where practitioners and providers can use tables and calculate a percentage of symptoms that suggest that this rare phenomenon is at play in a case. Thus, the article of Professional Psychology Research and Practice was published, and it was entitled A Practitioner's Complaint and Proposed Direction, Munchausen Syndrome by Proxy, Factitious Disorder by Proxy, and Fabricated and or Induced Illness in Children. This article was published in 2009, and even at the time, I considered the idea of including parental alienation, but I simply did not have enough experience with the pathological dynamic, or so at least I thought. Subsequently, I was brought into one case after another wherein parent alienation dynamics were at play and at the center of the case. Parent alienation was similar to Munchausen syndrome by proxy 
and or factitious disorder by proxy, as it too had a contentious literature. There had been multiple terms used to describe it, and it lingered because it is a difficult and prickly dynamic to bring into the open for all to see. On average, according to the literature, it takes 14 months for a factitious disorder by proxy case to be identified, when and if it is, and many times parental alienation cases linger in courts for years. Okay, so I knew someone needed to weigh in, and I started to write a manuscript about parental alienation along the same lines as the one I'd written about Munchausen syndrome by proxy and or the more scientific term factitious disorder by proxy. Although only shortly after beginning this endeavor, I realized that writing another piece on parental alienation would just be akin to throwing another log into a bonfire and have little impact. After many, many hours of contemplation, it became clear to me that if I was going to be able to underscore just how complex these cases were and how dangerous they were, then I would need to go outside of the existing diagnostic framework. Backing up for a moment, let's stop for a second here. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual series was written largely to address individual pathology. If relationships or dynamic interactions were considered in what is referred to as the DSM, they were not the primary diagnosis in the vast, in fact overwhelming, majority of these cases. Abuses, relationship problems, and social circumstances and other descriptors only serve to support, not augment, or as primary diagnoses. Individual diagnoses are the only ones largely described in the DSM series. So, what was needed was a new term and a new vantage point that would allow practitioners and professionals to see these cases and not the confusing mishmash of dysfunction that these cases appear to be when you're in the weeds with them. Instead, there needed to be a term that helped them separate dynamic and static elements of these phenomena, the individuals and the systems involved in these phenomena, as well as the overarching pathology involved. After much contemplation and thought about these matters, I was driving home one day across the beauty that is Montana, and about halfway between Livingston and Big Timber, it struck me. I needed to describe dimensions, and I needed to describe them in relationship to one another. I kept working it over in my mind, and by the time I'd hit halfway between Columbus and Billings, that is, after avoiding a series of accidents with all the snow and ice on the highway, I came to the notion of interrelated multidimensional diagnoses. It was later that week, and I was driving to another case, just above Judith Gap 
and heading toward Great Falls, when I considered that these dimensions could build on one another like a mathematical proof. That is, address one's individual static attributes and then their behavior. And at the same time, this applied to the child or children in the case. And then the same held for systems and systems and interactions. One dimension of considerations after another, and yet all were interrelated to one another. This manner of considering cases, these long periods of contemplations as I drove across the roads of Montana, perhaps even what might be considered me mental meanderings, is largely owed to the fine training I received as a graduate student in the Bay Area, an experience I think is important in understanding IMDs. It's a portion of the path that led me to these concepts, and the general thinking that took me beyond the individual into systemic theoretical cons constructs. So, I'm going to digress here for a moment. Back in the day, my graduate work started in the mid to late 80s, and I'd first run into clinical symptom patterns that were complex enough to give me pause early in my training during internships. While I knew that there was more to what I was viewing than met the eye or the, diagnos pardon me, the diagnoses described in the DSM, I simply did not know what to make of these cases even though I did my best to address the concerns. Such cases were stippled throughout my early experiences, and I was at least aware that I was missing something significant given the very sound training I had through both San Francisco State University and at the Wright Institute in Berkeley. Some of these lessons were not in the classroom, but were essentially in front of the psychology building at San Francisco State, what is now referred to as the Ethnic Studies and Psychology Building where I learned about the radical differences between individually focused psychological theory and family systems considerations. I asked a lot of questions as a student, not hopefully to the extent that it was irritating, though some of my professors may have had other views, but to the extent when something seemed to make sense and explain something phenomenon, I want to know more about it. I want to explore the idea. Well, those questions were often fielded after class, even sometimes in the fog, sometimes on a sunny day, in front of the psychology building by Dr. Julia Lewis and Dr. Karen Huang. They would use metaphors like bicycle wheels and spokes being out of alignment to help me get the idea. The idea that the concept of what is referred to as the identified patient in a family system was entirely dependent on context. They would refer me to read theorists like Gregory Bateson, known for his book Steps to an Ecology of Mind, or have us watch the working sessions of Carl Whitaker, or even read the mind-bending work of the Milan Group. While the psychodynamic training I received in my master's program certainly implied an individual's response to a family system, with attachment theory, object relations theory, and the like, family systems theory opened up a whole different set of considerations and vantage. 
That training certainly paid off, as oftentimes I have been able to perceive cases from an entirely different angle, looking past individual pathology and contemplating the larger systems issues, or even the systems within systems issues. It also provided greater insights into different cultural considerations. And just to be clear, I personally do not blend in well with larger metropolitan populations. I am a big six foot two Euro-American male um, who has white hair and what my uncles referred to as uh, a Q-tip kind of status in terms of the stylistic look that my hair provides me. Back then, even though I did have brown hair at the time, it was quite apparent that I was from the privileged population and a male. So to join with my clients at times was not so easy since a visual cultural divide was almost immediately apparent between myself and those that I attempted to serve. Still, systems thinking helped me recognize these dynamics, and it was apparent enough to where I was fortunate to be accepted into a pre-doctoral internship at the National Asian American Psychology Training Center there in San Francisco. Consequently, I came away from my graduate education with the realizations that were beyond individually oriented theoretical perspectives. Diagnostic considerations that had me thinking in terms of the culture of the family systems. As R.D. Lang put it, the politics of the family in his book from many years ago. The family systems considerations within the larger culture and the culture of origin were all critical and important ideas that I needed to entertain as a clinician. As it turns out, with all that education and working at becoming culturally competent in a diverse metropolitan area, which is never really quote-unquote accomplished by anyone in my view, and we are always a work in progress, I was faced with choices about my postdoctoral internship. I could stay in the Bay Area and continue to essentially starve, since as a student I was very poor, um, and truly I was poor to the extent that my friends referred to my small Toyota pickup truck as the deathmobile, since it was held together by bailing wire and duct tape. Um, and had in the end been totaled three times, once with me in it. So to be clear, I did not cause any of those accidents. Um, but I was not well off. And in fact, one week I was so poor that I bought a bag of apples, which I ate one by one across the week. So finances were a consideration. And there were postdoctoral internships in the Bay Area that would pay me slightly more than I had been paid as a pre-doctoral intern, or I had been offered a professorship in Montana at $10,000 more than I could make at the best internship in the Bay Area. Given my status at the time, 
the choice was clear. Well, I'm still living in the Mountain West, leaving only for a five-year stint to work in Maine. And so when I arrived in Montana, I still found myself unexpectedly addressing cultural and systemic considerations. I don't know why I thought they would have only applied in the Bay Area, but there you are. These considerations were just as important in this rural community as they were in the Bay Area. In passing, I presented those initial observations to the Montana Psychological Association in those early days and was met with, well, a less than enthusiastic response by its membership. In years later, I came to find out that my time in Berkeley had worked against me by default, and apparently my fellow psychologists were of the belief that I was referring to them as hayseeds, which I clearly was not. Um, but I had simply observed that an urban culture's rate of communication was quite high and fit the pace of an urban environment, while rural cultures communicated in more traditional terms and at a pace more befitting the rate at which they work through the seasons, a pace that on a farm or a ranch where the animals get fed first, breakfast follows, etc. Anyhow, um, back to my roots. Having grown up for a certain portion of my life in the Southwest, and with regular exposure to rural environments, their paces, and, well, its psychological surround, still there were equally complex cases in Montana, cases so complex that there had to be something else going on that wasn't evident, that was difficult to see, which all the while worked like a drumbeat beneath all of the dynamics at play in these cases. During my time working in Billings, initially as a postdoctoral student, I ran into a case that was being discussed as Munchausen syndrome by proxy. And as I went to reference it, I was astonished that a parent would harm their child in order to gain attention. And so the description went in those days. I pondered this for some time, and it had me circling in my mind over and over about family systems and individual characteristics. I was, however, ancillary to the case, and still the idea had gripped me in terms of just how complex these dynamics must have been, and at the same time how misleading and perplexing it would be to deal with as a practitioner. A situation that Meadow described very explicitly in his 1977 initial article on Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Still, later, while I was working at Wyoming State Hospital, I ran into another such case. And this time I was dealing with the parent who had decompensated after the dynamics involved had been borne out. Now, such a conceptualization was considered very, very rare in those days. And if you're not aware, there's not a whole lot of people in either Montana or Wyoming. There was about 800,000 people in Montana when I first moved there, and about 400,000 people during my time in Wyoming. So something must have been mighty amiss for a practitioner to catch this. I would suggest that if you want to read about 
the kind of mental gymnastics it takes to recognize these kinds of cases, I would strongly recommend reading Sir Roy Meadows' original work from 1977. There he had to do a 180 degree mental turn and abandon believing anything that these two mothers in these cases were telling him and shift his focus to only address the symptoms and lab results that were directly drawn under the supervision of hospital staff. Even though he recognized this, one of the two children did eventually die. It's a powerful read, and I would certainly recommend it, despite the uh, challenges that he has faced later in his career with the uh, unfortunate outcome in a case. So, after some time, I moved to the northern coast of Maine. And in case it's not become evident, I enjoy living and working in rural communities and wild natural places. There, among other work, I was in charge of running three outpatient clinics where we largely did work with child protective services cases. These were clinics spaced out about 40 miles apart along Maine's northern coast in Ellsworth, Machias, and Callis. These were small New England towns, the kind books are written about, with beautiful rugged coastlines and incredible fall foliage. Nevertheless, the aim of that work was at base to reunite a family so long as the children or adolescents being served could be safe while in the parents' care and not abused or neglected. While I was there, we did have a fairly involved case. It did address what was still largely referred to as Munchausen syndrome by proxy, although the DSM-4-TR had just been published in 2000. With the DSM-4-TR, the term factitious disorder by proxy was introduced. So in that case, we were guided to, by the language from the DSM-4-TR that was fairly straightforward. We could use reasonable clinical judgment and consider Meadows' work. I felt we were able to address the matters of concern and settle the case down in my role as a clinical supervisor. We had a therapist working with a mother in the case who recognized the severity of her condition, another working with the father, and still another working with the older children in the family system since the child who was most impacted was quite young. I felt like I had a handle on the phenomenon. Then I moved back to Montana, only to find the mess that the conceptualization had become in the literature across just a few short years. So I'd had quite a path in leading me to think about these kind of phenomena in a different way and viewing them in context and at the same time I was confronted by a very confounded literature. So now I'd like to bring you back to my time thinking about IMDs and driving across the state of Montana, working on cases in about 2016 or so. Once I hit upon a term, I started to write, and I wrote a lot. These ideas morphed into five massive manuscripts across a year or two in order to address all that seemed to be at work in parental alienation. Since that term has been used several times now, we'll just call it PA. 
So I was discussing manuscripts, but there is a book that I've been talking about. If I was listening to this, aside from the nonlinear meandering path so far, right now I'd be saying, huh? Well, the reality of it was is that I didn't want to write a book. I'd written several books before, and my own training makes it an onerous undertaking. In my view, being trained in what is referred to as the Boulder Model from 1948 as a scientist practitioner, there needs to be extensive references to give credit where credit's due, to run things down, and to ensure that your scholarship has fairly described matters as they are. And then there is the process of bringing complex, multiply determined ideas to others, which tends to be no easy task. So as I said, I had five massive manuscripts, and my colleague and friend, Barton Evans, convinced me that writing a book was the way to go instead of dealing with one journal after another. We did well with publishing the first manuscript in professional psychology research and practice. But the subsequent manuscript submission was simply too big for other journals to field at 70 pages or so. Parenthetically, that's about twice the size of the largest journal article um, published in those sorts of um, media. We're still, there were four more manuscripts behind it, and ultimately those four manuscripts now make up about half of the book in one way, shape, or form. In retrospect, there was no way to even conceive of IMDs without the early lessons I was blessed with in family systems and through my cross-cultural training. As for the frustration I was feeling when I wrote the complaint, I've come to find that I wasn't really alone in it, as many a practitioner and professional has strained to figure out a way to deal with the kinds of phenomenon described by factitious disorder by proxy and parent alienation. Scientifically, it has become evident that we need to break down the elements in these IMD cases in order to see them, to step back and see the whole family system and the systems influencing it. It is in this way that we can both see the abuses these children and adolescents are suffering and also see the parents through a different lens that I'll get to in a future podcast. It is not enough to voice the pathology on one family member or another, which I address in the book as an IMD family dynamic. It is not enough to recognize what is happening either in an IMD. What is needed is understanding, and that is so that intervention is possible. Understanding allows practitioners and professionals to see what is at work in an IMD and how to intervene in a way that addresses the family system its members, and the systemic stressors with empathy and compassion. I hope this has been an interesting journey for you. And in future podcasts, I will describe the concept of interrelated multidimensional diagnoses in more detail. How to conceptualize diagnoses that truly take into account individual, relational, and systems considerations. 
what kind of characteristics, dynamics, and symptoms make up each of the phenomenon of factitious disorder by proxy and parental alienation, and even propose new IMDs. If you want more information about my work, please visit my website at aspenpractice.net. And if you want more information about the tools associated with this work, please visit imd-i.org. And if you would like the book, go look it up on the Rutledge website or on Amazon. Please take care and be well. I appreciate your time and attention today.